I think that it is a call. I think that all of this experience and where we're at today, I think that the real conversation we're having is, is the bike industry going to see this moment for what it could be, which is an opportunity to get more sophisticated? We have buyers that they want to bring in our stuff, but can't right now until they move some other inventory. And so we're in a pretty tough spot playing a bit of a waiting game. And sitting and waiting is not what we're good at, and it's not very comfortable. Someone with one of the major brands told me they were they were spending a million dollars a month to store their inventory on bikes. And so I don't know how many bikes you have to have in a warehouse that it costs you a million dollars in storage fees, but it's a lot. The consensus within the building was pretty unanimous that what the COVID period had done was just accelerate the bike industry through almost inevitable change that we would have gotten to anyway. This is the third episode in our series that takes a deep dive into what the bike industry experienced during the COVID boom and how it got into the trouble it's in now. In the last episode, we heard from various industry professionals about the early warning signs that told them that this bubble was about to burst and some of the reckless behavior and pressure that was being put onto various parts of the supply chain by some big brands. But it's not so clear cut. We're also beginning to hear some finger pointing in all directions. And I suppose the fragmented nature of the bike industry makes it really easy for things to slip through the cracks. And in hindsight, it was perhaps a recipe for disaster. In this episode entitled The Famine, we zoom into the time frame when the demand came to an abrupt halt and what the bike industry was left with. We'll start again with Ellery Slater, who's the owner of Sports Garage, an independent bicycle dealer in Boulder, Colorado. I think what the more important question is, is like, why are we saying the demand declined when everyone should have known that it would? I hate to say that, but like, I'm the marketer, right? I'm in marketing. Yeah. And... I'm not the manager of the service department, right? So from a marketing standpoint, I'm always thinking about like the target market. And, you know, if we go back to the very beginning of our conversation, when we're listening for the first time at the very early days of COVID to these people saying, I'm looking for a bike less than $1,500. My mind as a marketer is thinking about that person. So when we say demand declined, I want to know declined from what? From mm -hmm. our expectations of how people were going to continue to enter the sport, our expectations of how we thought people would upgrade. Like, where was the demand forecast coming from? There's, there's a consideration, too, about the timing of a lot of this, because, again, you, you said earlier, people were saying this was going to last four years. Uh, yeah. Nobody knew when this was going to end. Right. Is there any lenience, possibly, or or consideration on maybe the timing of the demand, the forecasts should have been declining versus when they actually did. Is there something in that? I think leniency is a good word because no one had a crystal ball. And so, you know, I'm not saying that there was just this like intentional negligence on behalf of the forecast. And and who knows? I, again, I'm sitting here today talking as an IBD, like the things that are coming out of my mouth, I think I'm speaking on behalf of what a lot of bike shop owners are wondering. We mm. don't know how the sausage is made always, mm. right? With, our, with the manufacturers, you know? And so I think certainly, I don't think that our, our colleagues as manufacturers, they didn't have a crystal ball. They don't know when this is going to end. They have the exact same problem that we have, right? They can't convert product to cash without the product in the building, right? They're mm. doing the same dance that we're doing. And I can see where we're all trying to figure out, like, how do we do this dance? But I think the smoking gun in the conversation is the we're still increasing our forecast. 
when did they forecast even more? Even if we were in the pandemic, even let's say that the pandemic was going to last for six years. I still am curious about the person who paid $1,500 for a bike. Did we think that was going to last forever? Do we think that people would have kept buying $1,500 bikes for the entire pandemic? Once they have them, they have them. There's like a maximum number of people that want to buy a bicycle. Mm. There's a viable audience out there. Remember I said, like, we saw people like tap out at 3,500, like, oh, we'll find something else to do. That tells you right there, there's like a, there's like a certain size of the population that's like a viable audience, you know? So what I'm wondering, what I was wondering about as a manufacturer is I'm like, at the point in time, or as a dealer, I'm thinking of the manufacturers when they had these huge back orders and they're trying to get all this product. Like, did anybody ever just stop and say, are there this many buyers out there next year? You know, or, and this is where I think they deserve the leniency, are they trapped? I don't know. These are questions that I probably will never have answered. Are they like trapped in contracts with the factories that they just can't mm. get out of? It goes all the way to raw materials, right? Because there were totally, shortages totally. in that too, where the, the aluminum Absolutely. Model. So like somehow, you know, and again, I want to say like, I, I couldn't read the crystal ball. I can't assume that our manufacturer partners could read the crystal ball, but we're only seeing demand and supply constraints in our one business. So our lens is only as big as our local market. You go to the manufacturer level, their lens is only as good as the collective lenses of all the dealers where they're placing bikes, right? Yeah. And you go up to the food chain factory- yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So you can see, I mean, and and I'm sure it's hard for the listener to weave the fabric of a business model together, but I've talked about things like, hey, we were in a situation where we felt like we had to be caught up in dramatically increasing our order. We had a back order problem and we had to have customer service. We knew our manufacturers did, right? We've got bikes on the floor that we're going to sell or not sell. And then I think that it is a call. I think that all of this experience and where we're at today, I think that the real conversation we're having is, is the bike industry going to see this moment for what it could be, which is an opportunity to get more sophisticated? Here in Boulder, there's a couple high-end appliance places. And I remember when like bikes were having these problems, people would say, oh yeah, it's the same thing with your appliances. Like if you want, you know, like a high-end, uh, you know, refrigerator for your home, like get in line, you're gonna have to wait like over a year. Hmm. And then they would proceed to describe the exact same market situation that I'm describing to you, right? With respect to their refrigerator. Okay, I am dying to walk into the high-end refrigerator place here in town and say, do your manufacturers have four years worth of inventory on hand and have they cut your margin by 20 points? Oh, right. I want to ask, right? Because they had the same type of dynamic that we had in the bike industry, like offshore manufacturing partners, stuff that had to get shipped from overseas, distribution points, independent dealers, end consumers waiting, like all the same things that characterized the supply chain struggles that we dealt with as a dealer. But today, what I'm looking at as a dealer is manufacturers with multiple years of product on hand, and my margins have been cut dramatically. When you say your and margins I, have been cut, do you mean you've had to reduce your prices or have they raised their prices or how is that? Manufacturers have reduced their prices. So if I took a bike in December, this actually, this happened to us. I'm comfortable saying that this happened to us. We took our preseason order. One of the first shipment windows for your preseason order is always like November, or December. Usually when you place your preseason order with a manufacturer, you get your first round of bikes delivered in December. 
It's pretty normal. You paid a price for that bicycle. You probably placed the order in September. You got the bike in December. It's been invoiced at a certain price with the assumption that the MSRP is another price. This year, what we have experienced is a rolling cascade of I buy the bike, they drop the price. I buy the bike, they drop the price. I buy the bike, they drop the price. Our gross product margin this year on selling bikes at at the store is dramatically lower than last year. In the past years, like, and again, I just, I want to, when I say, when listeners are listening to this and if other bike shop owners are listening, I know that like your gross product margin is wildly different based on what you can buy, what product lines you're representing, what's happening in your service department. So, Mm -hmm. but rather than tell you the absolute high and the absolute low, I will tell you that we have had like a delta, a decrease of, I would say on average 12 to 15%. That right? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. all the remember when I said we were uncomfortable with the amount of inventory we had at the beginning of the year. Yeah, we sold all of that inventory. So much of it we sold with a hundred dollars profit, two hundred dollars profit. Not because we were panicking and porching our inventory. It's because that was the manufacturer's advertised price. Yeah, like wow. we would get a dealer email that said we're running a special. These bikes are now on sale. Great. Yeah. Wow. This, I think, is the hardest thing to talk about today, the most vulnerable thing to talk about, because that's that's the real-time thing. Now, tell me more about, and maybe if this doesn't fit into this part of the, the narrative, but um, tell me more about, you were talking about the agents, and when agents get paid and they're incentivized to just ship an item versus sell an item, is this is this the appropriate Absolutely. time to talk about that and when the agents started um, overselling? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, again, and there are other industries that don't do it this way, which I always use it as an example. And I'm a bit of a heretic, Wade, because I've for a long time said that the bike industry, that you know, one of the single largest missing initiatives is to benchmark bike warranties, right? Because when bike gets registered, that means it's in the hands of an end consumer. Like someone bought it and they registered it and they own that product. And that is a very important like macroeconomic piece of data. Or you're saying register, you're saying register for warranty. Warranty registration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it, got it. So I'm going to use an example from the outdoor power equipment industry, Um, steel chainsaws or really high-end landscaping equipment. Okay. The agents in that industry, and I'm full disclosure, I know this because my husband actually worked in that industry when we had former careers. Like we, when we bought the bike shop, we came with a very different business context. We had just been bike buyers and bike riders. We'd never worked in the industry. We were not cool kids. We were not racers. We were just people that had run businesses and now decided to buy a bike shop. When he worked in that industry, so for many decades, when an agent would sell, for example, like a riding lawnmower into a dealer, again, very synonymous to the bicycle industry. Those are largely outdoor power equipment industry. The outdoor power equipment dealers are like the bike industry. There's a lot of mom and pop shops with service partners, right? So the agent would sell, let's say the riding lawnmower into the floor plan of the independently owned outdoor power equipment dealer, just like a bike rep will sell a bike into the floor plan for an IBD. But the agents in that industry and with this particular company and three or four other companies like it, it was not recorded as a sale for that agent until that product's warranty was registered. Mm. So as a part of their work protocol, right, they would place the stuff in the floor plan. The prices for these items are about the same as a high-end mountain bike. And then part of their work protocol is when the product would move through, like it was the dealer's responsibility to 
capture the customer's information and register the product because as sold. Mm. And it would include information like date of birth and the date and MSRP and all that stuff, mm. right? Well, then when that product got registered, the agent got paid. Okay. So the agent was incentivized to support the dealer with the sell-through of their floor plan and to make sure the product got registered. That also gave the manufacturer incredible insight into the first-person data of who their buyers mm. were. So this was the business context that specifically my husband came from because he and I run the business together. We were mind blown to learn that our agents got paid on everything that was sitting on our floor, mm. whether we sold it or not. Once it hit our floor, they got a paycheck. Kind of like you said earlier, you're the top 10 buyer, not necessarily seller. The top 10 buyer. And God, I've gotten some dirty looks for saying that. I really mm. have. And and I've even said like, oh, I could be a top 10 dealer tomorrow. You know, and manufacturers are like, no, you couldn't. I'm like, oh yeah, I could move to North Dakota and I could be a top 10 dealer next week. And they're like, no, you're earlier you said. I'm like, oh, yes, I could. <laughs> I could buy $2 million worth of bikes and give them away in a high school parking lot and you would still send me a plaque. Yeah, yeah. You said earlier um, you, you were... Uh, basically saying just send us all the parts you have right and and yeah. and was was um was that something that other shops would have done too that in conjunction with the agents to have possibly gotten themselves into trouble now or was does that relate to the agents maybe you know that's interesting i feel like every time we asked for a bike and send it without parts we didn't do it like to just have more inventory on the floor. We typically did it because we had a product that was sold that we were waiting for. And we felt like, it, again, the, I can't, again, like I said earlier, you cannot underestimate the importance in a good bike shop of customer service. Yeah. And part of this landscape, the COVID landscape, especially in late 2021, was sold products that a customer was waiting for. Right, right. And when you speak about the agents and the incentives for them to sell to to the, the IBDs, did this create a behavior that we hadn't seen before because of the influx of, of orders and requests? Yes, there were a few examples that were just silly. And I don't want to make a direct correlation between like the sell-in. I think the sell-in, they knew it was important for getting a paycheck. I think the real problem with the way that agents are paid when product gets shipped is that it actually creates a black hole of information for the manufacturer about how much of their product is sitting in the mm. field. It's it's like a twofold problem, but it's not, I don't want to say exactly, it's like these super um, self-interested agents that are like, oh, if I sell you more, I get paid. Of course, they're thinking that. But if you think about what the larger problem is and the situation that we're in today, you know, when did today's situation start to evolve? You know, the agent is not your partner in selling the product that's on your yeah, floor. Yeah. They're not. They're your partner in placing the product on the floor. Right. So then if you're the manufacturer and you've got all these back orders and you've got a forecast for next year, how can you accurately forecast and assess the health of your back orders if you have no idea what's sold and what's not sold on the floor? I mean, somewhere in some point in time, wasn't there someone sitting at their desk going, wow, we sold 300% of our volume in one year. Huh, we should look into that. Going back up the supply chain, here's Rob Jatelis again, describing what the consequences of the bubble bursting looked like in Asia, where most of the bike industry's manufacturing is done. When demand did subside, when that did actually happen, what was the aftermath in the uh, assembly and manufacturing part of the supply chain? What was what was what were they left with? 
Well, I, I think that a lot of companies probably had to take um, loans against purchase orders in order to buy the materials. So a lot of assembly factories or other factories got sort of uh, you know extended terms from the bank in order to kind of keep things going. Now, again, the brands are saying, hey, you know, we don't need that. Can you please hold it? You know, we, we need to slow down delivery. And now the banks are all pushing the factories like you, we gave you these, you know, line of credit, you need to pay it back. Um, and it started this whole cycle kind of over again. And then to add a little more stress to the system, Peloton bicycles are produced in Taichung. And there was an enormous amount of Peloton stock of semi-finished goods at factories all over Taiwan, where Peloton had the same level of euphoria, was asking factories to produce huge quantities of product without even giving them any security or, or purchase orders, just saying, make it and we'll buy it. And so then the factories, you know, maybe one factory is just making extruded aluminum. Another one might be making, you know, the saddle for that or this or that. And then all of a sudden, Peloton, as we know, completely tanked. And so it was it was something in the realm of a billion dollars of work and process that is all in the city of Taichung, which is where Giant, Merida, Factor are all located. And we're using a lot of the same subcontractors that were building parts for uh, Peloton. What did this mean? We're... we're um... You know, you said extra warehousing, extra manufacturing. I imagine this meant a lot of layoffs. Has that happened? I think that's what we've seen now. I think a number of factories are working three days a week now. Not necessarily layoffs, but definitely slowdowns. Yeah, a lot of this uh, extra manufacturing capacity that's been been uh, ramped up and purchased and uh, leased is that just simply like you say um just slow down or is that deserted or what what does it look like if you were to take a walk through these well i think a lot of it was rented properties and so you know all these warehouses and whatnot were all rented and so i think it probably gave a bump to the economy or a bump to those landlords in the short term i think a lot of landlords probably built warehouses thinking that okay now there's this good opportunity it's not very expensive to build a warehouse here in taiwan so i think slowly all that product has been consumed it's now no longer here in Taiwan. Now it's all, you know, in your North America and Europe, being, right. you know, waiting to be sold. So. Is that right? So, so what's happened is you've had all this uh, warehousing space that was a backlog of, uh, of of timing, like you said, and these warehouses are now empty. They've been shipped around the world and now are sitting in bike shops or brand warehouses and that. Is it really? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my understanding of it. That, you know, things have really started to normalize in the sense that the demand is not, you know, not that crazy strong. And so, you know, factories that, you know, had, you know, greatly hired, have had to let some people go. You know, in 23, there was definitely um, a pretty big slowdown in the industry that caused factories to work, you know, less. I think in 24, it's already starting to come back. And, you know, I continue to remind everybody, everybody's like, oh, business is so bad. And I'm like, how does it compare to 2019? And they're like, oh, it's ahead of 2019. I'm like, well, then it's not so bad, you know? And, and that's how you need to keep looking at this is like, you can't compare what happened in the pandemic to where we are today. You had to look and see where we were before the pandemic, where are we now? And almost everybody I think will tell you we're ahead of 2019, even, you know? And so that's really all we should be concerned with. Here's Tyler Jordan of Seven Mesh once again. We slowed down 
2023, uh, and we finished 23 slightly down from 22. You know, we've heard stories of people going back to pre-pandemic levels or going back to where they would have been if the pandemic hadn't happened. That hasn't happened to us. We've maintained most of the growth we had during the pandemic, but didn't grow last year. We were slightly down because we were uh, notably down on our B2B business with cancellations from our dealers and people having too much inventory right now. But our direct-to-consumer business on our e-com grew considerably last year and made up a bunch of the gap. So we're still seeing demand for a product at the consumer level, maybe not quite as robust as we'd like to see, but you know, we like I said, we had decent growth last year, um, but we're not seeing that necessarily as strongly on the B2B level. We're losing access to some of the consumers that like to buy our product at the best retailer. And that was the biggest chunk of our business. So it's really tough. Uh, so um, right now, I feel like I have, don't have a great understanding of how fast that um, the B2B situation will unwind and the interrelationship of it doesn't matter whether it's apparel or a bike that's filling up the shop that is taking up all the open to buy dollars. But, you know, we have we have buyers that, that want to bring in our stuff, but can't right now until they move some other inventory. And so we're in a pretty tough spot playing a bit of a waiting game and sitting and waiting is not what we're good at and it's not very comfortable. So the 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 hard goods oversupply um, is just taking up all the cash flow of the bike shops and the the, the wholesale business. Is that a summary of that what you're is, saying? That is the narrative as we understand it from what we can see and what we're generally told. But I don't know that. I don't have enough data to know if that's the case. The risk for me is to think that it's a it's a hard goods bike issue, and then actually realize that people are sitting on an endless amount of um, cycling apparel out there that's going to kind of that. Uh, that makes it really easy to get something decent at a great price. And that's excellent value for the consumer. And there's less opportunity for us to to give them something even better that'll be quite a bit more expensive than what they can get on a closeout. You know? I'm trying to steer away from the narrative that it's that it's a bike thing because I don't want us to assume that. And it's kind of like blaming the other and not looking yourself in the mirror and saying, what can I do to resolve this problem for ourselves and our dealers? So what are the challenges right now that you are facing? Is, is it higher inventory levels and cash flow? What are some of those challenges and how are you dealing with them? Yeah, those are definitely the challenges. So we have, we don't feel overly exposed on inventory. Um, we had to decide when everything slowed down, we faced a very clear decision point of we can react to this one of two ways. We can either think this is a, a life or death situation right now. And the first people to pull the trigger and blow out, blow out all their inventory on sale, protect their cash flow and hunker down. Those people are going to be winners. And those that wait too long are going to be trying to sell their product in a heavily discounted market and they're going to be losers. That's one viewpoint. And the other viewpoint was that the brands that fire sale stuff are going to damage their brand and they're going to burn their retail relationships and they're going to get hurt. You're better off to just be patient, work through this properly, know that we have great products that people are going to keep coming to, et cetera. I don't think that was an easy choice for some people. And I understand that. For us, we're trying to do things a certain way. And you know, the bulk of our business was wholesale. And so we wanted to take the high road and do what was right. And so we accepted dealers placing cancellations. We worked with them to take back some inventory. We did what we could to protect our relationships with our retailers, which was, you know, was tough on our business and was financially really hard. We thought was better than the alternative of doing serious damage to something we worked so hard to build. And so we decided that we were going to weather the storm carefully and come out the other side. And so we worked with our dealers we worked through our, our old inventory and some inventory bubble that was left from cancellations, and we were cautious about that. And so our focus for last year was, let's just move through our, our product that, while there's heavy discounts going on, and let's be, be patient and slow and accept what's happening, uh, and let's be a good partner to our dealers, and hopefully realize a lot of benefit from that on the other side as things strengthen again as we come through this. This podcast is fully funded by our members at Escape Collective. In fact, 
All of our content on our website and our podcast network is 100% supported by our members who believe that cycling media should be independent from the sport and industry we cover, and that we should exist to serve you rather than live or die by our ability to be a platform for the sole purpose of selling you more stuff. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our other work and believe in our mission of independence, please go to escapecollective.com slash join and become a member today. Thank you for your support. A recurring theme from conversations I've had with brands who don't make bikes is the difficulty they're having getting the products into dealers where much of their product is sold. Much of the shop's cash is tied up in bike inventory that's either not moving or not making any profit because of discounting. Here's Josh Portner from Silka again. We also had certain long lead time items that had, you know, we had overordered on a year prior that ended up getting fulfilled as the demand was was waning and, and collapsing. And I think we've, uh, we're fortunate that we're across a bunch of diversified product lines. And so it certainly didn't hit us everywhere, but yeah, we, we took it in the shorts in a couple of product areas. And I think the folks I've, I've truly feel the worst for, uh, are, are the clothing companies. You know, you think of, you know, most people don't realize, but like the clothing company supply chains really run out way more than a year in advance. And during COVID went out almost two because you're picking fabrics and suppliers and colorways. And then it's like 10 to 12 months just to get your fabrics. And then you've got to cut and sew the fabrics and then you've got to get them shipped and on the water or whatever to your customer. I mean, it's, it's minimum 18 months. Those companies as a category took it worse than anybody else, not necessarily due to the decisions they were making, but just due to the nature of their supply chain. They were no spot, unless you were over inventoried at the beginning of COVID, as a clothing company, you weren't in a place to capitalize almost at all during COVID. And then right as you're getting inventory that you could actually capitalize on, <laughs> it all ended. Um, and so that's another place I, I feel really lucky. You know, we we have nothing in our business that runs out anywhere near um, and the wh- fast, what that is. Ter- no, uh, like uh, the fashionable nature of clothing as well too, right? Like they've right. got that to deal with. I'm, I'm curious on your perspective of this because... Um, Bike shop owners have told me that <laughs> the way the agents are incentivized is when they sell to a bike shop, not when this bike shop sells something, right? So, mm. and the bike shops notoriously have bad first party customer data. So, the bloat, so to speak, where you know, a distributor goes or brand direct goes and sells to a, a bike shop, they're done. They think 100 bikes or whatever, they're, they're, they're sold. Yeah. Meanwhile, they don't have proper insight to how many bikes are sitting at that bike shop even and or or even asking that question then you you know you say two containers or a container of uh, group sets show up and they don't realize that the bike shop actually is not sold through any of these is that an accurate description of where some of this uh digestion issues come from yeah i, I think oh we we're certainly we're still experiencing it from dealers we work with who have no cash to buy our products because it's all tied up in inventory of of bikes. You know, I, I think particularly right. like, like e-bikes in Europe right now are, are amazing. I mean, I don't know how many hundred million dollars of inventory of e-bikes there are in Europe, but it, everybody's sitting on piles of e-bikes they can't sell. When you say and amazing, amazingly bad. Bad. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry. Amazingly <laughs> bad. Yeah. You know, when their cash is tied up in that product that's not moving, they can't buy stuff from us. Even and if how, our stuff is moving. And so 
And our uh, we, dealers we, started to go hand to mouth with, you know, we'll order one pump, we'll order one bottle of lube or a case of lube we, or whatever. Yeah, we, we definitely see some of that. Um, you know, we definitely see some dealers actively moving away from some of the larger brands that are maybe a little bit more more forceful or have more power in um, their dealer agreement of what the dealer needs to buy has changed, I think, a lot of the conversations that are happening. And I think a year or two from now, the dealers who remain are going to be a lot like we were coming out of the 2018, 2019 supply chain issues we had. They're going to be stronger and smarter two years from now or a year from now than than they are today. Um, and I think it unlikely they make similar mistakes in the future. And I, so I think what's going to happen is we're going to weed out. We're already weeding out companies that behave too egregiously. Um, and, and in some cases, those companies were just extremely unlucky. So it really wasn't all just misbehavior. But I think the shops that are left are now, and I feel like I see this in my conversations, they're conversing about business at a level that was not there pre-COVID. You know, I think they're definitely, absolutely, there are shops out there that, you know, were like the happy-go-lucky shops that were suffering before COVID, riding the wave of happiness during COVID and and are now gone because they didn't understand any of it. But yeah, the, the shops I see now performing well, they're minding their inventory, they're negotiating for better terms with those bigger companies. They're really putting their focus where it matters, you know, building community, things like that, because you got to have people to buy the stuff. You know, we, we're certainly seeing it, I would say, um, through things like hot wax as a service. Like that's really an interesting bit of business that's kind of blowing up for us. And it's a lot of dealers love the thought of, hey, the customer is going to come in once a month and get their chain waxed. And, you know, I think it's a little bit like, you know, us keeping the doors open with masks. You don't need to make a bunch of money hot waxing chain for people. Just getting them in the shop is huge and having those conversations and they're probably going to buy something else where they're there. But it really is that that building the community that's going to hold all those new customers that walked onto the playing field during COVID. We want to hold on to those people and we want to keep them with us. And I think the local dealers in particular are, are going to be a huge piece of that. What I've been told by dealers is that they're being forced to discount on the shop floor because the brands themselves are discounting on their own online shops. I mean, we're even seeing two-for-one deals from companies like Kona. The problem is, is they're not making any margin on any bike sold. The challenge they have is, you know, it's classic uh, sunk cost fallacy, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, I've got so much money in this thing, I got to get the money in. Like, dude, it's you just need to start looking at that bike that the the factory lowered the price on you got to look at it as like a briefcase full of cash and and move it mm. um it, and then you know, make a plan how are you allocating that cash convert that unit into cash and move on because if it's sitting there it's just tying up cash mm. right and, and in a lot of cases you know if you owe the bank for that inventory it's not just cash it's ca it's a pile of cash that's growing mm. every day right it's it's worth more yeah, that that is where I, you know, there are amazing dealers running amazing businesses out there, um, but there are a lot of them that I think could probably use a little bit more business education, cash flow, and, and certainly not putting, you know, I'm out there trying to learn this stuff every day, right? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's have advisors, have people they surround themselves with 
to talk to, you know, diversity of opinions. I think that's a, a huge, you know, a bunch of bike shop owners talk to each other. The conversation goes really differently than if you get a bunch of diverse business owners talking to each other. You need um, some in Andes in the I, room, eh? Yeah, you just, everybody needs Andes in the room. God, I'd, I'd say that. Yeah, that that's a big piece of it. But I, I, I do think we're, we are starting to come out of that inventory pig in the python. You know, I, I know probably seven months ago, one of the major brands, someone with one of the major brands told me they were, they were spending a million dollars a month to store their inventory of mm. bikes. And wow. so I don't know how many bikes you have to have in a warehouse that it costs you a million dollars in storage fees, but it's a lot. Um, but eventually those bikes get sold and get moved. And if they don't go out of business first, <laughs> if they don't go out of business first, yeah, for sure, for sure. But, but I think, you know, you, you are seeing a ton of companies right now discounting, trying to move product. I think there are deals to be had, but you do also see a lot of, not to name names, but you know, that, that like $14,000 road bike that's sitting there. Well, I get that you're upset that it's so expensive, but like that company might've paid a thousand dollars to ship it here. And they're back to our sunk cost fallacy. They're looking at that saying, well, I, I can't discount that. I've got the cost of the bike plus the thousand dollars I paid to ship it. Eventually that's going to, that's going to have to break. But if they're not, if they're making a hundred bucks off that bike though, like how do they afford to pay their staff? Right? Like it's just either going through inventory, not making any money, can't pay their costs, go to business. Oh, agreed. There's no long-term business model in that, right? You, yeah. you can't, yeah, I am in no way advocating that you're selling bikes with a hundred dollars of profit margin, but I think we also have to be realistic of the situation. If you're a shop that can hardly pay their employees and you've got $80,000 of bikes on the floor that you cannot sell, you need to convert that into cash yeah. so you can do other things. Yeah, and sorry, I'm not insinuating there's st um, standing on it. Yeah. Oh, no, they're, no, no. They're I, but, I mean, it, but it's just like you know, we're spinning our wheels. Yeah, yeah no, and I, I think that's the hopeful right-sizing that the industry needs to get back into. And I, and I, I do think we're going to see it. I think you know, material costs are starting to come down. Shipping costs have already come way, way down. You know, we still see like inventory and storage costs are quite high because of the stuff that's happening in the real estate markets. But, you know, oil costs have come down quite a bit. I think we've been really lucky that Ukraine has been <laughs> the badasses that they are um, in that and that also that that hasn't escalated in an even worse way that, you know, I mean, oil could have been driven to $500 a barrel or something and it, mm -hmm. it just hasn't been. Um, so, I, I, again, I think some of this is... is we've been lucky some of this is that this stuff just needs a little more time to to play out i think you know it it is a whipsaw but i think like any kind of harmonic excitation right it it will damp itself back down to the center line at some point we're just now living through you know we've been through the big roller coaster whoop-de-doos now we've we've just got to survive the small ones Perhaps the biggest shock of the industry was the overnight bankruptcy of Wiggle Chain Reaction. I got in touch with Jake Dudick, who was formerly the VP of Commercial Operations, after he wrote a candid and insightful postmortem on LinkedIn about the online retailer's downfall, unlikely confluence of events that took place. For Cigna Sports, I think the first important thing to for, for people to kind of wrap their head around is Cigna Sports was initially just a subsidiary of Cigna Holdings. And Cigna Holdings uh, is this, you know, a massive holder of commercial real estate in the EU uh, and with exposure to all sorts of things like hotels and high-end, you know, like fashion retail spots and office space, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 
there's a difference there between those those two entities. You know, there's a there's a relationship, uh, a deeply tied relationship between Signa Holdings and Signa Sports, um, but they were different entities. And Signa Sports was very reliant upon Signa Holding. You know, in the event that it had cash flow issues, it needed a cash infusion, whatever. Like there, there was you have one key shareholder that links these two things together, basically. I think that's probably like the first headliner for for people to to keep in mind. Then the second headliner really is like the Cigna Sports business, you know, encountered some real issues associated with the bullwhip effect in the pandemic. Certainly probably got caught up in in a similar way that many other brands have gotten caught up with other over procurement, you know, reacting to a demand signal, um, taking a read during the pandemic, being a bit over optimistic on how was this demand signal a new reality or not? Mm-hmm. You know, was is it artificial or is it not? That led to, to serious cash issues, you know, like cash tied up into inventory, uh, the need to, to liquidate massive discounting. And then the third headliner really, I think, is that although it had this connection between uh, this, this important shareholder serving as this link between Cigna Sports United and Cigna Holdings, there was a capital backstop there, right? So there was a commitment from the shareholder, you know, to Cigna Sports. Uh, if you get into trouble, like I've got you covered. And I think the other main headline is that there is a a whole host of other issues that were that's associated with commercial real estate, and that's you know a, a change in foot traffic, right? That's also due to the pandemic, uh, and and central banks raising interest rates also a function of the pandemic. And so there was a set of different challenges on the real estate side, on the signal holding side that kind of like triggered an inability, or at least it, it, it triggered the shareholder to make a decision of like, I know I said I had you guys, but I don't because I've got other, I got bigger problems. <laughs> I think that that is really like, if you're looking at three or four main dominoes in the stack, like those are probably the ones. That gives you a high-level idea of what went on at Cigna Sports. Jake's LinkedIn post gets into SPACs, DSPACs, pipes, shareholder breadth and liquidity. And if that's up your alley, I highly suggest you head over to our show notes where I'll post a link to Jake's piece. The other contributing factor to Wiggle chain reaction situation was ZERP. That's zero interest rate policy, which refers to the conditions of near zero interest on borrowed money that propped up economies all over the world during the pandemic. According to reports, the real estate side of Signal Holdings felt the sharp interest rate rises and associated cost blowouts, which put an end to their run, tipping them into insolvency. We haven't spoken about private equity yet, and that topic deserves an entirely separate episode in itself. Private equity, who often, not always, but often uses debt for financing, certainly did move in on some companies in the bike industry. And many of these companies' woes have arguably been amplified by this free money era and the way that private equity works. Getting back deep into the traditional bike industry, here's Tay Huang again from QBP describing what the slowdown meant for the distributors. Uh, yeah, uh, road bikes were, were in rough shape. Uh, gravel was continuing to look good. Mountain bikes were tricky because we were looking at web traffic for our own internal bike brands as as our kind of bellwether for for end consumers and we were still getting plenty of traffic on our mountain bike product pages 
but because there wasn't any mountain bikes to buy, there wasn't any sales data to support it. By then, it was also really interesting that kids' bikes had all but fallen off a cliff. You know, early COVID, I, you know, mountain bikes, kids' bikes, you know, that's all they wanted. That was done. No one was asking for more kids' bikes. BMX bikes were in the dump. Comfort bikes and hybrids, no one was buying those either. It was, yeah, it was it was pretty clear that that only gravel was still going strong from a sales perspective. And even that one was concerning because the average sales price was continuing to grow because we didn't have any low cost gravel options anymore. That had all sold out, right? Mm. So this customers who probably should have bought a $2,500 bike, probably buying a $5,000 bike instead, right? Yeah. What was the view uh, on or the theory on how this new market might consume cycling was it thought that you know the low end consumer would graduate to a higher end and become that person was it thought that maybe person who bought this bike just basically delays that purchase for a later time and you know it's six of one half a dozen of the other or how are you how is the bike industry looking at this or at least from your perspective on you know does this make sense to last so when we were in the middle of things I remember that first summer, mid to late 2020, you know, I was talking about the different product categories that were selling well, you know, all the Carmen's and the carbon stuff was doing great. The $50 helmets and trunk bags were just sitting in piles. And when we, when we had that confirmation that those lines were forming outside of shops, people wanted bikes again, retailers couldn't get enough some of those categories still weren't moving, which was very confusing because when you sell a $300 bike, you also sell a $50 helmet and a $50 trunk bag and a tire patch kit. And, you know, there's like these add-on pieces Mm. and those weren't moving, right? Mm. And so initially the conversation was, well, shops are locked down. It's tough for consumers to be trying on apparel right now, right? Retailers can't move the slat wall outside for them to shop, you know, lights and bells, right? So this is all reasonable. Yeah. So the expectation was, okay, they they bought the bike. The consumer is going to come back eventually and pick up the add-ons. And then we started seeing the add-on sales kind of peter back, right? Some of that was shops opening up again, but the the thought was there's a strange lag that's that's been created and we should see it catch up. And so I think there was an expectation, okay, it's been a year and a half. Some of these hybrid buyers are going to come back. They're going to buy a road bike. They're going to come back buy a mountain bike. But it was hard to ever confirm that that was actually happening because stock on everything was so low that you can't measure something you don't have any of. Mm. By the time that I left in 2023, um, and again, hindsight being 2020, the consensus within the building was pretty unanimous that what the COVID period had done was just accelerate the bike industry through almost inevitable change that we would have gotten to anyway. It's very likely all those sales we saw in 2020 and 2021, if we just spread them back out, we would have had a perfectly even trend line between 2020 and 2024. This just accelerated the market versus creating a new one. Yeah, we, we we moved sales from the future into the present is yeah, I yeah, think yeah. how my supervisor yeah. like to talk about it. Yeah. It is kind of a downer in this case because 
our projections were always for sales to continue to diminish. You'll have to do some more research on this one because for the life of me, I, I tried to Google it. I can't find it anywhere. So I'm sure it's buried in some industry back end somewhere. Um, but we had a report from S&P with like a 15 year projection for the bicycle industry. Part of what made it hard to use was it was a mixture of boutique bikes, IBD and, and department store bikes. And then uh, it overlaid uh, uh, electric and acoustic bikes into the same chart. And it had a very clear downward trend each year, 2016, 2015, or 2017, 2018, you know, right? That's with e-bikes in the picture. So when you split those apart and you pull the e-bikes away from the acoustic bikes, you can see them rapidly taking market share, mm. even as the overall units continue to diminish. And so with that in the back of our heads, when when the COVID boom fully started, I think there was a lot of optimism and hoping that this would be a kickoff to a new golden era of cycling, a lot like we saw in the recession. There, there was a hope that we'd get enough people back on bikes that we would refill the channel with consumers, right? Which I think tells you a lot about the bike industry, you know, our default is just selling more expensive bikes to the same people over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, when you when you referred to the surveys and you're only getting a handful back and you said mm -hmm. earlier, you've got your hand on the stop button, what happened when you said we should push the stop button and what did you have in the pipeline? At that point, when we decided to stop the survey and I sent out an email to the full survey recipient group, which had our CEO and different heads, different teams, they had already been trimming back on POs for, for a quarter, at least mm -hmm. at that point. I don't recall the exact timing, but we had our head of distribution retire and someone new had come in to take over. And I think it was under their direction that they already wanted to start slowing things down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. A lot of the other um, stories I've heard is, you know, let's let's keep it going. This is going to go for another eight years type thing. Mm -hmm. So that's um, that's interesting. Well, pretty vindicated, uh, honestly. Early this year, when we saw like Marin did their buy one get one, um, yeah. um, and then today Kona. Do you think we're going to see more of these bankruptcies? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Kona is frankly at the top of my list. The fact that they had to let go of their sales team tells me that they weren't able to move enough product and people started to panic. And then the fact that they went online as their primary sales channel, but are still selling through IBD retailers, but haven't adjusted their pricing model to be in online pricing. As a non-bike industry consumer now, <laughs> I'm not going to buy a... $8,000 GX bike off of Kona's website when I can get the same product spec on a Canyon for half the price, right? Mm. So it's just that the value isn't there, but they have to be charging that because they need that revenue. And if they're that desperate for that revenue, then it tells me they're sitting on more product than they, they feel confident they can sell. And, and, and the buy one, get one only confirms that to me. Our number two competitor on the distribution side, or QBP's number two is uh, Holly Lambert. Earlier last year, they got bought out by a private industry company and they got a bunch of money 
brand new website, brand new like ERP systems. Do you mean private equity? When you say private industry, yeah. do you mean private equity? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, it was a, it was enough money that got injected with enough hiring that they did that uh, I don't want to say that we were concerned, but it was definitely big enough to be on our radar. We joked that uh, they started COVID in good shape because they were in such bad credit hell that they couldn't get product. Mm. Uh, and so when the slowdown happened, they didn't have anything that they couldn't not sell. And then lo and behold, I, I think it was not even a month ago, they let off like a quarter of their staff. My guess is private equity is asking where the profits are, right? And uh, if that's not coming, then they're going to keep cutting to the bone until it does. And, and private equity has borrowed money at near zero interest. And the what people don't realize is that the company that they've bought is responsible for that debt, not the private equity. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been hearing chain reaction, wiggle, new mm. proof. I'm still surprised Marin is got its doors open. They did that BOGO, but they must have done it early enough to right the ship a little bit. Uh, I mean, that's that's what we had been doing. Our Q started massive discounts last fall, and they just kept. Is <laughs> that joke that internet meme? Someone's turning the dial and looking back at the crowd, waiting for someone to say stop. And every week. All right, let's add another percent to add another percent. And it was because we our surveys pretty clearly indicated that retailers knew a slump was coming. So we had to overcome their own best interests again, because our sales reps weren't going in there saying you need to buy this product. And so the discounts had to be good enough that a retailer who knew better bought it anyways. And they did. I think that was difficult for a lot of Q folks because it, like I said before, so many of us are, are shop rats at heart. It's tricky because you know they shouldn't be buying this product. Panniers at 80% off, just because it's 80% off, no one's coming to buy them. As we've heard, there are many contributing factors that went into the troubling situation that the bike industry faces now. We've got an inflexible supply chain that's not used to massive fluctuations like it saw. There were big brands putting ordering pressures on the retailers, and the retailers and brands were over-ordering to manufacturers. All of it combined with very little or no first-party data to actually make decisions on. The current challenge for manufacturers and shops is playing the waiting game and staying away from that cycle of discounting in a way that's going to normalize unsustainable prices while the inventory slowly digests. What I'm hearing that's happening on the ground is that bike shops are starting to self-organize and help each other out. For example, if a customer wants a bike that's not in stock, the shop might call around to other dealers so that they're not ordering from the manufacturer again and continuing to keep the dealer network clogged up. But if the big brands can't move their inventory to their traditional dealer network, they're going to have to find somewhere else to move it. You might have seen the news that the big US chain Dick Sporting Goods and their specialty stores will be giant dealers in some states. But it's also hard to see how this move will benefit the local bike shop. In episode four, we'll look at some of the lessons learned from what was experienced. We'll hear about the aftermath. We'll look into a crystal ball with some forecasts and we'll put forward some tough questions for the bike industry to ask itself. <laughs>